mindfulness practice we teach, in which we practice here at Spirit Rock, has its origins in the teachings of the Buddha. And the Buddha taught this practice for the purpose of freedom, of liberation. Another synonym for liberation, the word liberation, is release. He taught this practice for the purposes of release, to be released. And sometimes people uh, will confuse relief with release. And relief is nice, but relief doesn't last. And the Buddha was pointing to something more radical than relief and comforting, but to a fundamental change in the psyche that uh, can be characterized as release or freedom. So he spent uh, many years teaching about freedom. And um, in the course of doing that, he taught many, many different ways, including uh, composing poetry. And there's a book uh, of anthology of his teachings that was collected you know, a long, long time ago that's called the Udana. And it's translated into English as the inspired utterances the inspired sayings. And it's, uh, it's primarily a, a place that holds these poems that the Buddha supposedly spontaneously uttered when he was inspired. And I would like to read one of them that has to do with freedom. And the poem appears at the end of a story, or an event. There's an event that happened that he was uh, participating to that he was part of, it ended in a man becoming awakened, becoming liberated. And after this man's awakening, the Buddha was inspired, and he read, he's made up this poem. This. So I'll first tell you the poem, and then I'll tell you the story. And it's a story which is very dear to Vipassana movement, because it's a story of Bahia. And uh, there's a part of that story of Bahia, which is often quoted here, at Spirit Rock um, uh, as pointing to some kind of, the, kind of essence or the heart or something very pure, simple about how mindfulness practice can be done and how it can be liberating. The story of Bahia, it's uh, the story of the person who was enlightened the fastest in the time of the Buddha. So in the Zen school, they talk about sudden awakening. So this is pretty sudden, the story. So it's kind of a nice story. So the poem might seem a little strange, but it maybe as you listen to it, it um, maybe it opens you a little bit to the possibility of something different than what's commonplace, so what you commonly the world as you commonly know it or understand it. Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, there the stars do not shine, the sun is not visible, the moon does not appear, darkness is not found. And when a sage, through wisdom, has known this for him or herself, Then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, he or she is freed. Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing. Earth, water, earth, fire, and wind, it can be understood in Buddhist uh, language as kind of a shorthand for our experience of the world. Their experience of the tangible world is through the through these three categories, and um, where they have no footing. It's kind of a strange expression, perhaps, but it's a. Remember, this is a a, a time and a place very distant from English. When Eng- and in, Eng- in English, we have uh, words that are similar to this, or concepts that are similar, and um, we talk about. Um, uh, getting caught up, hung up, 
we talk about having hooks or buttons or being pushed around. The, um, so there's all kinds of ways in which our experience of life, our thoughts, our feelings, events that happen around us, that they push our buttons or we get hung up or get caught by them or we get somehow uh, stopped by them or we resist them or we you know, grab onto them. So in the ancient language, they say that the world has a foothold. It has a place where, it, in, in your mind where it could stop and rest and stand. And um, some of you probably had, the, maybe have had the experience here of seeing the difference between um, putting up something, some resistance or some hooks. Something happens and you, 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 you get hooked by it. And in a different time, the same thing might happen, similar thing might happen, and there's, you doesn't get, you doesn't, you know, there's no hooks for it, and it just kind of passes right through, or just doesn't get stuck anywhere in your mind. Sometimes on the retreat, people will um, have a vipassana vendetta about someone who's really noisy in the hall near them, the, uh, the Velcro jacket phenomena <laughs> that seems to go on and off in the course of the sitting, and. Um, and so it's not uncommon for someone to come to a teacher and say, you have to do something about that person. <laughs> and it's not uncommon for the teachers to say, well, I think you should practice with it. And it's not uncommon for the person to come back some days later and say, oh, you know, uh, I realized that actually this, something like, you know, um, I thought the sound was bothering me, but really I was bothering the sound. <laughs> you know, the sound met something inside of me, it met my indignation, it met my attachment to my, my practice and my peace. It, the, the hook or the button was um, my judgments about how people should be on retreat. Or, there's all these, all these hooks, all these ledges, all these footholds in the mind where that sound can settle. But if there's no foothold, if there's no hooks, no buttons, then it's just a sound going through. It's not a problem. And this is a very important principle in Dharma practice at least, the principle of taking responsibility for our suffering, for, the, for our hooks and our buttons and what goes on, and not looking outside and saying, that's the problem. And it's, it's a very challenging teaching and something that takes maybe years to really uh, grasp the real implications of it. But there, to find that place in the mind, find that capa- capacity of freedom, of release, where there are, are no, is no foothold. And in that place... Um, there the stars do not shine, the sun is not visible, the moon does not appear. That sounds a little bit gloomy. <laughs> and so it's a little bit like, what's going on here? But then it says, and darkness is not found. So now we're talking about something different. What's, you know, what's, this is not something that's ordinary. Some place where there's no, neither light nor darkness. What is that place? Is there such a place? A place where there's no hooks. No place where the mind doesn't get caught. A place where the mind is free. Is something about that place being a place where there's neither light nor darkness. It's not gloomy because it's not dark. And I think that some of you might have had experiences that may be somewhat similar to this and give you a little sense of it. Um, if you've ever had the experience of being, really feeling somehow in a palpable way or immediate way, the, the timelessness of the present moment. Sometimes, you know, you've done some great, maybe a hike in the wilderness, and maybe not, you've gone someplace and taken a nice nap under an apple tree, or maybe in lovemaking, or maybe in, you know, all kinds of different kinds of situations. Maybe you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes. And it's something, something very palpable and beautiful at times about the timelessness of the present moment. It just seems to extend forever. It's very spacious, very broad. It's almost as if time has stopped. It often comes with a sense of, of peacefulness. And um, where is it? You can't point to it. It doesn't have a color. It doesn't have a shape. It doesn't have a smell. It doesn't have um, a location. 
So all the usual reference points for understanding it's not quite there. But it's still, it's more, sometimes more real than anything real. Just a very, very strong feeling at times. It doesn't matter if it's dark or if it's light. You can have a timeless presence laying in your bed in the dark, and you can have it in the full sunlight. That somehow that place of a timeless present is not, in some ways, touched by light or darkness. It has no monetary value. So maybe it's not interesting. Why bother? Can't get it for Christmas. Not something you can wear as a badge. Increase your status at work. And when the, many times the mind is interested in things that can do something for us, that's tangible and immediate and something clear, like you know, more money or better house or better relationship or better status or more comfort or you know, something. But the timeless present, which can be quite satisfying, is not a thing like that. It's kind of ephemeral. It's kind of like you can't grab it. Kind of, you know. But it's something. <clears throat> so the place where, the, where earth, water, fire, and air doesn't have a footing is kind of like that. It's, a, it's a definitely a, a kind of dimension, a possibility, a dimension of the mind that's very different than how the mind normally relates to life and reality and to ourselves. So it's kind of pointing towards a mind which is free. And when a sage, through wisdom, knows this for him or herself, then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, he or she is freed. Some people get attached to the world of form, of things. And some people get attached to the world of formlessness, that's not of things. For example, the timeless present, maybe. Get attached to that, the formless world. And this is actually something which is freed from both the formless and the form. It's freedom from both bliss and pain. Now, why in the world would you want to not be, you know, why do you want to be freed from bliss? I mean, you know, it's been bad enough all along. <laughs> and freedom from bliss, and that seems kind of boring. I mean, you know, these, these Buddhists, they're so flat, you know. Norwegian Buddhists. You know. <laughs> Watch out for them. <laughs> the Buddha wasn't Norwegian. I'm sure it was a different flavor. But each to his own flavor, and um, but you know, but I, I, you know, the freedom from bliss and freedom from pain is freedom, and freedom is delicious. Freedom is the best. So that was the inspired words, and now the story that led up to it, that inspired that. Then maybe by the time we get to the story, you also understand this poem a little better. It starts off um, in India, time of the Buddha, at the seaside near the ocean. And there was a um, renunciant by the name of Bahia of the bark cloth. Apparently he only wore clothes made of bark. They pound bark to become soft and make it into kind of cloth. And the text says that um, this man was... um, Worshipped, revered, honored, venerated, given homage, given a lot of respect. And I think the story has helped if you give him the, the, this, the benefit of the doubt that all this reverence that he received was because he deserved it. <laughs> that he was a mature person, a spiritually mature person. He was a, he was a spiritual, practi- spiritual practitioner and he was mature. And then the question I ask you, and a question I don't want to answer tonight, but rather something that maybe you'll live with for a while, is what does it mean to be spiritually mature? What does it mean to be humanly mature? 
And you might ponder that after the retreat and you might talk to your friends and see what they think. And you might go find the most mature persons around and ask them, what does it mean to be mature? To be humanly mature, spiritually mature, what does that mean? So this man was a mature person. Now some of the things it can mean, among other things, is that um, he was a really honest man. The level of integrity, sincerity of honesty. I don't think you can have maturity without honesty. Certainly you know, without self-honesty. And you'll see in a few minutes that he was an honest person. Sincere. It probably means that uh, maturity probably means that there's a certain kind of healthy perspective about life and experiences of life. What's important and what's not important. My guess is he did not spend a lot of time watching television. (laughs) I think he probably had better things to do. Or the equivalent back then. Sometimes we say that, um, or there's a kind of assumption that as people get older, elders, you know, that they become wise. And for a long time, I thought that was because they uh, had had a lot of life experience. And in the last years, I've been thinking, well, maybe that's some of it. But also I think that as a certain age, your death is close by, you know, is almost visible. You get a sense now it's you know, you know. You don't have unlimited time to do whatever you want anymore. You, know, you kind of get a sense you know it's coming. And for some people that happens when they turn fifty, some when they sixty. I don't know. Different people, different. They get a sense, and that proximity to death creates a different perspective of what's important. And that that perspective of what's important, I think, it brings a certain kind of maturity of what is important. When I was 14, what was really important was going to school without zits. (laughs) I was afraid people were going to laugh. (laughs) And um, and now, I think I have one. (laughs) You know. And I really don't care what you think. It's even, not only do I, you know, just, even if you did laugh at me, I don't care. So you get a different perspective as you get older. So certain things when you're in your 20s, those of you who have already been through your 20s, you look back and say, what was I thinking? Or, you know, you know, certain kind of a phenomenal attachment with job and work and Advancement in work, and you get to retirement and say, what was I thinking? So a lot of things shifted, shift. One woman I know, when she was in the mid-60s, she said, I finally realized, by learning to kind of see through a lot of the cultural things I'd learned and growing up, what I, I don't need a man. That's something. I don't need to be in a certain kind of relationship. So there's a kind of, kind of maturing that happens, a certain perspective that changes what's important. I think that the part of maturity is not being caught up in what other people think of you or caught up in trying to create an image so we present ourselves a certain way to be, so we can kind of control the image of how people see us. A big learning for me was to overcome my attachment, my addiction, my neurosis of wanting to be liked. That was a big, a lot of, I had a lot of suffering around that. So that was a hook, that was a foothold for life experience, wanting to be liked. Boy, was that ever a foothold, a big, big button. Someone who's mature has learned to let go and probably has let go of things which are not worth holding on to. And then I, would, I would propose there's a lot of things people in this world hold on to that are not really worth it. If you did the cost-benefit analysis, 
doesn't come out in favor of holding on. It's not uncommon for people when they start doing mindfulness practice and they start investigating their anger rather than kind of just believing it and acting on it. And, but stop and look at it carefully. And they my God, I didn't know it hurt so much. I'm hurting myself more than the person I'm angry with. It's not worth it. You know, so it's easier to let go when you realize how much you're hurting yourself. Even though that person's justified in you know, blaming. So you learn to let go. And so Bahia was a man who had learned to let go. He had that ability. And he'd probably let go of a lot because he was renunciant, living this way. He was a recipient of robes, alms food, lodgings, and medical requisites for the sick. This is the only things, only possessions that he had. He had, just like a Buddhist monk would have, just a few simple robes, maybe the only ones he wore, and alms, alms food, he had probably a bowl, just lived on his alms food that he got each day, didn't have a refrigerator. Simple lodgings, and in, in, in the ancient world, renunciant was allowed to have medicine, certain kind of simple medicine. So he, he learned to let go of a lot. And again, giving him the benefit of the doubt, uh, he'd probably learn to do that in the healthiest possible ways. Letting go of the appropriate things and had to learn how to do that in a good way. He was mature, learned to let go. And then he asked himself, he was alone one day, and he asked himself this question. I think it speaks really well for him that he asked this question. Now, of those who in this world who are enlightened or have entered the path to enlightenment, am I one? He'd been practicing spirituality for a long time. He was respected. He probably had a certain degree of maturity and maybe even some kind of attainment. And he said, am I really enlightened? Rather than assuming he was because he got all, all this reverence from people. And then there was a kind of minor god that somehow overheard him thinking this thought. And this minor god came to do him a favor. And then God said, You, Bahia, are neither enlightened, nor have you entered the path to enlightenment. You don't even have the practice whereby you would become enlightened or enter the path of enlightenment. That's pretty good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what have I been doing all these years? <laughs> you know, you just, you know, boom. It's good to have teachers like that. <laughs> and then, to his credit, he doesn't get defensive or apologetic or explain himself. One of the signs of being mature is not being so defensive or apologetic. Imagine living a life that's unapologetic. You don't have to apologize for being alive. Wouldn't that be good? Then he asks, but who in this world is enlightened or has entered the path of enlightenment? Then God says, Bahia, there is a city in the northern country called Savati. The Buddha, an enlightened person, rightly self-awakened, is living there now. He is truly enlightened and he teaches the Dharma that leads to enlightenment. Then Bahia, deeply chastened by the God, left where he was right then and there. Just didn't go, didn't even bother to go get his, you know, go say goodbye even. Just, he just, right then and there, headed for Savati. In the space of one day and one night, went all the way to where the Blessed One was staying near Savati, in Jetta's Grove. So it's a long distance from the ocean to Savati, to Saravasti Varanasi. So probably he didn't do it in a day. But I take the story day and night. But I take the story to mean that uh, he was really resolved, really intent. And that's also a sign of maturity, to have the ability, appropriately, to have great resolve, determination. This is what I'm doing. This is important. Get out of my way. You know, I'm, just, I'm not going to let anything else interfere. 
And so he probably did, you know, set out and just without any hesitation. That's what he did, just headed, headed for Sabbath to see the Buddha. Day and night he walked, maybe no drinking, no eating, just that's what he was going to do. And he came to um, Jetha's Grove where the Buddha was residing. And he came across some monks who were doing walking meditation. And he went up to them and said, where's the Buddha? And um, they said, oh, he's gone into towns for his alms to gather his food for the day. Then Bahia, hurriedly leaving Jetta's grove and entering Savati, saw the Buddha going for alms. Calm, calming, his senses at peace, his mind at peace, tranquil and poised in the ultimate sense, accomplished, trained, guarded, a great one. Actually, the word is Pali's Naga, is great snake. But I like this expression, calm and calming. He was both calm and his presence was calming. So he rushed off to meet this man who's calm, intent to get some teaching to meet this man. And he says to the Buddha, teach me the Dharma. Teach me the Dharma, O well-gone one, that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. And the Buddha says to him, this is not the time, Bahia. We have entered town for alms. It's the wrong time. You, know, you don't call someone while they're having dinner. And so uh, Bahia asks again. He doesn't take no for an answer. And the Buddha says again, it's not the time, please. But Bahia, you know, he's intent, right? When I was in Japan, I was a monk, a Zen monk in Japan. And uh, after a while, I kind of lost my my Zen teacher. And um, so I was traveling around Japan looking for a teacher. And there's a whole culture and custom about how you look for a teacher if you're a Zen monk in Japan. And um, I was going to go see this great Zen master, and I was being coached how to do that. You know, I had to go see this great guy, because it's kind of difficult to see him. <coughs> and I was told, oh, because you're, you know, looking for a teacher, you go unannounced. You just go show up. That's, that's, the cult. that's what you do, you just show up. And I think partly it expresses that sincerity and that dedication that, you know, this is what you do. So I did, and he wasn't home. (laughs) (laughs) And then a third time, Bahia asked, and he said it this way, but it is hard to know for sure, what dangers they may be for the blessed one's life, or what dangers they may be for mine. Teach me the Dharma. Teach me the Dharma, O well-gone one, that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. You never know when you're going to die. I've known people who said, later. I'll get to spiritual practice later. You know, I'll just finish this work, do this thing raise my kids, whatever, and later. I'll get to it. They're important things to do, later. Will will there be a later? You don't know. I've known people who've regretted waiting. So there's something also about the spiritual life that for some people, it's so centrally important to their life that it doesn't make sense to wait. You never know how much time you have. And by he has one a man like this. It's please tell me now. I don't know how long we have. So there's a custom in ancient ancient world that if you ask a Buddha something three times, he's obligated to answer. <laughs> so the Buddha answered then. And this is the teaching that's uh, quoted very frequently here at Spirit Rock. 
And it's kind of like a expresses something essential about mindfulness practice. I'll read it and explain it. And what the Buddha is doing here is in a nutshell, in a very kind of very powerful, very kind of brief and succinct way, pointing to liberation, pointing to the path to liberation. Then, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the scene, let there only be the scene. In the herd, let there only be the herd. In the sensed, let there only be the sensed. And in the cognized, let there only be the cognized. So this is the first part. So in the scene, what you see, the scene, let there be just a scene, and the herd, just a herd, the sensed, just the sensed, the cognized, just the cognized. Now it's interesting to study how easy it is to add things on to what is seen, or heard, or sensed, or cognized. More often than not, we're always in relationship to this world of ours that we experience. A lot of that time has to do with how it relates to me. To my comfort, to my safety, to my desires, to my opinions. So I could sit here and see this bell. And I can see a bell. And I can just see in just a scene. And the bell, seeing a bell, just a bell. And then I can add layers and layers of overlay on that bed, that's a spell. I can see it as, oh, this is the, bed, the bell they have at Spirit Rock. It's a pretty innocent overlay, but it still is an overlay. It's a bell that was given to uh, Spirit Rock by the San Francisco Zen Center. Isn't that nice? So another overlay. It's a bell that really sounds good when you meditate. I need to have that bell. (laughs) If I had that bell in my house, my meditations would be profound. I wonder who I talk to. I want that bell. Or an overlay could be, what in the world are they doing with such a big, expensive bell? These people here. Who are these people here? And how could they have done that? And I should talk to someone. (laughs) So there's overlays. It isn't just a scene in the scene. It's a scene and then there's all these reactions, responses, opinions that get overlaid into it. Someone comes into the meditation hall late. In the herd, just the herd. Or, in the herd, doesn't that know that the period started 10 minutes ago? How could someone come in late? Those, those teachers, they really should have had strict discipline. If this was a Zen center, they wouldn't allow it. And these Vipassana people, they're so wishy-washy. You know, and they, they really need to get these people, they really should get serious about their practice and really meditate well and then they know they have to have real discipline and probably those teachers don't, don't even know how to be present and oh wait a minute what am I doing? <laughs> you know you spend half an hour kind of going off right? And um, it's an overlay right? And the herd just the herd but no it's all the stuff that goes on added to it. Some of it has to do with what's out there judgments and opinions and some of it has to, the overlay has to do with how we are in experiencing it. So I hear the bell. And, um, and I might have the thought, I don't think I heard it right. I don't think I, you know, I must have missed something important. Or let me give you an even better example. When I was a news um, practitioner, uh, Gil was short for guilt. 
And um, I'd feel, you know, you, you know, opening a door is just opening a door, right? But I'd feel guilty. I was opening the door in the wrong way. I'd walk across the meditation hall floor and I was doing it the wrong way. A friend of mine who died got all these books. He knew he was dying. He got all these books on death and dying. He was afraid he was going to fail at dying. <laughs> I don't know anybody who's failed. I mean, the dead people haven't. <laughs> the, um, but he thought he would do it the wrong way. You know, so some of this overlay has to do with subjective ideas about who we are, who we think we're supposed to be. Sitting, watching the breath, meditation. You know, I've had, I've, you know, when I was in Thailand, I had a lot of constipation and really bloated feelings. And, you know, it was just, when you're bloated, you're bloated. In the bloated, just a bloatedness. <laughs> but I, you know, I added so much on top of it. Or sleepiness. The amount of suffering I had around being sleepy until I learned that in the sleepiness, just be sleepy. Be aware of sleepiness. And, and it wasn't a personal failing that I took it to be. I can tell you horror stories. So there's, you know, in the scene, just a scene is a very profound thing, especially when you realize the alternative for most of us most of the time is a complicated world of abstractions and emotional reactivity and a lot of buttons pushed. And it's a great relief and also a release to just leave things be really simple, leave them alone. And that's what we're asked to do in mindfulness practice, is to learn to leave things alone, our experience. Just have the experience be what it is and, and learn to distinguish the interpretation, the reaction from the experience itself. It's not an easy thing to do because often our interpretation, our opinions, our views, our emotional responses are so entangled with the experience that we don't see them as being separate. It's like canned laughter on television. The joke's not really funny, but because the canned laughter is there, it seems kind of funny. We kind of get caught by it. It's contagious. Um, but if you separate, if you turn off the, you know, the sound, I guess, the canned laughter, you kind of see, or the mood music. You know, you don't separate the scene in the woods without the mood music. Uh, you know, they can have wonderful romantic music and you get, it means something. Or some, this ominous music and uh-oh. It's just a scene in the woods, right? So the mood is entangled with what's there. So part of mindfulness practice is beginning to tease apart what's extra. And then, then to have the wisdom about is that extra necessary or not? Is it useful? Some of it is. And some of it is just not useful at all. It's well worth letting go of, being healed from. So, so a lot of the mindfulness practice is not necessarily being able to, in the seeing just a seeing, her just a herd, but rather a lot of mindfulness practice is learning to see I'm entangled. I'm, I'm judging, I'm caught in my opinions, my self-consciousness. Then, in the self-consciousness, can it just be self-consciousness? In the opinion, can just be the opinion. As opposed to, oh, I have an opinion. I'm a bad meditator now. We just add more and more complications. So the, the, the kind of direction the mindfulness practice is going is becoming simple. To... to to grant, to give, it's a kind of act of generosity to let each experience, to grant each experience, to give each experience we have its pristine simplicity of what it is in itself. It's a great thing to give to a friend, to let your friend be who they are, to let Howie be his suchness. Each of us, to see ourselves in our suchness. The... Um, so then the Buddha went on. When for you there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. When you have a thought, just let it be a thought. Then Bahia. There is no you in connection with that. There is no you in connection with that. 
there's a bell. And there's no me in the connection to the bell. Just a bell. My, my identity is not tied to being a really good teacher who knows, knows just right how to hit the bell. Then there's a me in connection to the bell. The best bell hitter at Spirit Rock. <laughs> it's just a bell. Just hitting the bell. There's no me in the bell. No me implied or invested or made up in relationship to it. There's no me there. This is a very profound thing, not to find a me. And the bell is kind of a simple kind of example. But what about in your pain, physical pain? Some people find there's a big difference in their mind to experience the, uh, there's a difference between experiencing pain as my pain versus the pain. And that when you say my pain, there's an overlay, there's a little extra kind of thing that's added to it. There's a foothold, there's a button. And it's a magnet for all kinds of things. My pain, my pain. And you might experiment a little bit, just saying those things in your mind. In your, in your mind. And you might find when you say the pain, maybe it's just a infinitesimal, we might feel a little bit more kind of, more space or a little bit more freedom from it. So in the scene, just a scene, you won't, there won't be any you to be found there. Is that okay? Is it okay not to find a you in the bell? Is it okay not to find a you in the pain? Is it okay not to find a you in feeling sadness or happiness? And the sadness, just a sadness. And the happiness, just a happiness. Many emotions we have, there's layers and layers of hooks and buttons and opinions and footholds that has. Meaning we assign to it. Can it do the pristine simplicity of an emotion? Just that by itself. So, no you there. And if there's no you in connection to that experience, when there's no you there, you are neither here nor there or in between. You don't find yourself in that experience. You are not found here or there or in between. There's no location for you if you're not using something to reference yourself. You don't, you stop existing because you're not there this way? Not at all. But there's a lack of that self-consciousness which is one of the footholds where our life experience settles and gets caught. And it's one of the great offerings of Buddhist practice is an experience of freedom where we shed all the unnecessary movements of being self-conscious. Self-conscious in the sense of being uh, self-preoccupied. Defining our experience reference to me here. So to be alive, unapologetic, to be alive and be undefended because there's nothing to defend. No idea, no image. To be alive and have nothing you need to prove. In the scene, just a scene. In the cognize, just a cognize. In the feelings, just the feelings. In the motivations, just the motivation. In the actions, just the action. There's something very simple, radically simple, about this place of freedom. And the Buddha went on to say, this, just this, is the end of stress, of suffering. Just this is the end of suffering. And that's kind of the, really the primary context for all this teaching. And it said over and over again, the sutta, it was really out of compassion the Buddha taught this. Was he was really concerned with our suffering, that human beings suffer. And he's offering 
is pointing to a dimension, a way of being alive, which doesn't diminish us, doesn't diminish us. The shedding of the attachment, shedding of this self-consciousness, of self-image, of self-identity, is not a diminishment. If anything, it's an enhancement. In a sense, we, we get so big that it doesn't make any sense to say us anymore, me, I. There's no location, no here or there or in between. When you're peaceful and quiet, is there a location for your awareness? Is your awareness bounded? Is it just inside your skull? The sense of consciousness or awareness, does it have a limit? Does it have an outer boundary, how far it goes? It does if you define your consciousness by your thinking. Then it can feel much more like it's claustrophobic. But if you can learn to step outside of thinking, or sense or feel yourself, feel your way beyond thinking, in the space between your thoughts, there's a vast world. Who are you when you're not telling yourself who you are? The Buddha is pointing to a place of freedom. In the seen, just a seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sense, just a sensed. In the cognized, just a cognized. Through hearing this brief explanation of the Dharma, the mind of Bahia, right then and there, was released. Right then and there, was freed. He was ready. He was mature, right? He, didn't, he wasn't holding on to much. Maybe he let go of almost everything that was worth letting go of, except some kind of, even a lot of his conceit, self-image issues and all kinds of things. But maybe there was still a very subtle sense of I am. I'm the one who's doing this. I'm the one who's practicing. I'm the one who's going to become free. And this teaching of this transparent place, and the seeing just a scene, it freed him from that last place where he's still even the sense of I amness. Poof. And then the story goes on a little bit more, maybe as a way of um, emphasizing the uncertainty of life and death. Because it's said that when Bahia left, just a little bit later, um, uh, he got uh, uh, gored by a cow and died. You never know. He was right. He didn't know. It was really important to get that teaching then and there. And so then when the monks came and found the Buddha and explained to him what had happened to Bahia, died, then um, the Buddha composed this poem. Remembering Bahia, in remembering, just the remembering. He remembered Bahia that he met earlier in the day, reflected on him, understood that he would understood that his mind had, was liberated, he was a liberated person. And though perhaps it was sad that he died, it was a great event that he touched freedom before he died. He experienced full freedom. And it's in this regard, on this occasion, that the Buddha and express this inspired saying. Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, there the stars do not shine, the sun is not visible, the moon does not appear, darkness is not found. When a sage, through wisdom, knows this for him or herself, then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, he or she is freed.
this is pointing to a possibility which would be quite foreign idea to most people living kind of the ordinary ordinary life of greed, hate and desire, of self-preoccupation and consumerism and all this stuff, where the mind is kept on a treadmill and busyness, where the life is so much about things, about relationships to our, me, to the world, to other people, and to the future and the past. And when the mind and the world is caught up in, in the world of things and relationships and thoughts and ideas, it's like there's, you can't, you can't imagine. You can't even imagine. The stillness, which is here in this room right now. And perhaps the sweetness of the stillness. And imagine that it's another dimension, another possibility, that's so radical and so simple at the same time. In the scene, just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the cognized, just the cognized. In the thoughts you're having right now, just the thoughts. In the feelings you're having right now, just the feelings. Giving yourself the time to discover the pristine simplicity of now. This talk was given by Gil Franz de Litt Spirit Rock on December 16, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma.